Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes Buck Owens biographer Randy Poe to talk about Buck, the Bakersfield sound, its influence on the Beatles, and the best businessman in country music history. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Randy Poe, the co-author the co of Buckham, the autobiography of Buck Owens. Randy, welcome. Thank you. So tell us, how did you come to be the posthumous co-author of Buck Owens' autobiography? Okay. I had written a book in 2006, I believe, um, called Skydog, the Dwayne Allman story. And I had always wanted to write about people who hadn't had books written about them before. And Dwayne was one. And at that time, Buck was someone who had never had a book written about him. And so, uh, and I've also always been a big fan of the Bakersfield sound. So I got in touch with Buck's former attorney, because Buck had passed away, and asked him if anyone had ever written a book about Buck Owens or if anyone was interested in doing one now that he knew of. He got in touch with the estate, called me back the same day and said, they want to meet with you. So I zipped up to Bakersfield, which is a couple hours from here in L.A., and met with some of Buck's family and with a gentleman named Jim Shaw, who was the keyboard player for the Buckaroos. And continues to be, but I mean, he was the, the keyboard player during Buck's lifetime. And uh, as they took me around uh, the production offices there and the radio station in Bakersfield, they took me into Buck's old office. And on the desk in Buck's old office were a bunch of cassette tapes. And Jim Shaw said, oh, these might actually be helpful to you if you end up doing this book. And I said, well, what are they? And he said, well, uh, a couple of three years before Buck passed away, he started uh, recording his life story on cassette tapes. And I said, yes, that would be very helpful. <laughs> and so that's why uh, very early on the concept changed from what was going to be what I wanted to be originally an authorized biography of Buck Owens to an actual autobiography by Buck uh, using his own words, uh, for the most part, from all those cassette tapes he had recorded over the last few years of his life. And the sibling then was quite the jigsaw puzzle. It was. It was, it was the world's largest jigsaw puzzle uh, because Buck... Uh, wasn't exactly a linear guy. He would just turn on the tape recorder. Uh, it was it was so funny. I, I'll tell you that um, I felt like I got to really know him well uh, because he would turn on the tape recorder every single time. He'd say, "Testing, testing. Is this thing working? I sure hope this thing's working today." 
<laughs> I think he had a little faith in electronics. And, um, and then he would start in on whatever he felt like telling about that day. Not The first tape was not, I was born on my way to the hospital. It was a story about something, you know, halfway through his life. And each cassette, even though one was, you know, cassette one and the next one was cassette two, the next one was cassette three, in the order that he recorded them, none of them had anything to do with uh, chronology. It was just stories that would come to his mind. He would tell those stories and then move on. Um, he would drive me crazy at times because he would say, oh, uh, that reminds me of a story and interrupt another story he was already in the process of telling since you never finished. So so there are, there are gaps that I was not able to flesh out because I didn't know what the answer or the punchline was unless I could find him telling that same story in a magazine interview or um, a radio interview or something like that. And sometimes I was lucky enough, but there were other things that were stories I just couldn't include because I didn't know how they ended. Um, but he would do things like tell... Uh, I mean, his whole premise, his whole plan was to have an author take these tapes and for them to, to end up writing the book together. Um, and so that's why he was putting it on tape in the first place. And also, he was frequently talking to whoever this prospective author someday was going to be. And he would... I found myself talking back to the tapes, basically, is what I'm getting to. I, I, there was one moment where he's talking about uh, the the men in the family being arrested in Arizona, and he said the, the judge that threw the case out, his name was Judge Bird. That was spelled B-Y-R-D, and I said, okay, thanks, and then realized I'm talking to an old cassette tape. <laughs> <laughs> So let's give people a little bit of context for just just how big Buck Owens was. You, you you mentioned in the intro that he recorded sixty albums and had twenty one number one country singles. This is and something like seventeen of those were in a row. This is yeah. pretty unmatched dominance of the country charts from anybody. In nineteen seventy, Capitol Records named him the country artist of the decade. And if you were a country artist on Capitol Records, you were a huge star. Um, all, all the Glenn Campbell, uh, Farron Young, uh, just the, the there were just all Bobby Gentry. Everybody was on Capitol. You know, all these country acts were on Capitol, and Capitol chose Buck, the one guy not from you know Nashville, as the country artist of the decade. There was really. Nobody that could touch him. Uh, Buck, like you said, had all of those country hits in a row in the 60s. He, um, he had his own unique sound. One of the things about Buck was when his records would come on the radio, you instantly knew it was a Buck Owens record because it was so, so brighter and more trebly than the stuff that was coming out of Nashville. Uh, but, but, but he was a megastar. He was uh, a guy who could go to Japan and play to a, you know a, a huge uh, venue. He was not just a big star in America. He was a big star around the world. And his emphasis was country, but of course, uh, his songs crossed over to the pop charts frequently. And as we know, his biggest hit, one of his biggest hits, was Act Naturally, which the Beatles later recorded. So so that's the kind of popularity that this man was experiencing in the 60s. No one could touch him. And he did it as a rebel against the Nashville system. He, he pioneered the Bakersfield sound. Tell us a, a bit about the tension there. Like, What was it that made the Bakersfield sound different from what Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley and other country politics and producers were doing in Nashville? Well... Um, the Bakersfield sound was music to dance to. It was old-fashioned honky-tonk music, but with a rock beat, basically. Uh, the, um, the guys in Nashville 
were always trying to cater to a larger audience. And uh, thus the strings and the background vocals, Eddie Arnold, uh, Jim Reeves, those kind of uh, singers, Patsy Cline, uh, great vocalists uh, and great country singers, but uh, Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley and those guys in Nashville who controlled the Nashville recording scene at that time, they were trying to do everything they could to sell more records, and their interpretation of how to do that was to get the records to sound as close to pop records as possible so that the pop market uh, audience and radio stations would want to play those records and buy those records, and that was the way they did business, which was fine. Buck's attitude out on the West Coast was... He didn't want background singers. He didn't want strings. To him, that wasn't country music. Country music was two guitars, a steel guitar, a bass player, and a drummer. And uh, they played uh, loud. And like I said earlier, the, they played very trebly because the, the, the more treble they put into their recordings and on stage, basically the louder they were. And that was what they were going for. Um, and that was the kind of sound they made. And it was just a different kind of sound that was coming out of the West Coast. Merle, similarly, Merle's records were his, Merle and his band. Uh, Buck's records were Buck and his band. Um, a lot of these guys, Red Simpson's records were Red Simpson and his band. Whereas uh, in Nashville, it was, you can't use your road band. You're going to be using the, the studio musicians we have here in Nashville. And that's the way it's going to be. You don't have a choice. And I think all of us, that are familiar with the country market now know that the outlaws came along a little bit later and did exactly what Buck had been doing on the West Coast years earlier, totally controlling their music. Uh, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson both using their own bands on their records, uh, just like Buck had done a decade earlier. And it took Buck a minute or two to get control of his recordings. He signed with Capitol, I think, in 1957 after a pretty long apprenticeship in the Honky Tonks there in Bakersfield. But it took a few recordings before he could get Ken Nelson as producer there to dispense with the backup singers and let him produce it. And I want to play the first song that Buck had creative control of, production control of. And it's also coincidentally the first song of Buck's that hit the country charts. This is Buck Owens' second fiddle. Second fiddle to your new love while it lasts. Just like all the others I played for in the past. Why can't I be a leader and play a leading part? Why must I always. And that was Buck Owen's first country charting single, Second Fiddle, uh, one where he had sort of seized the means of production and, and got Ken Nelson, the producer, to dispense with the backup singers and, and produce uh, not quite the full-on Buckaroo Freight Train sound that's going to come later, but but a, a country single that hit the charts and got success. And one thing that strikes me writing about reading this autobiography of Buck is this is a shrewd dude. This guy very quickly figured out uh, song publishing, started his own, you know, signed a contract I believe with Ken Nelson, his producer's publishing company, although he didn't know it was Ken Nelson's company when he signed with it, although Ken Nelson was the guy who signed him to it, but very quickly forms his own production company and negotiates with Capital so that some of his songs can be assigned to his own publishing company and later signs Merle Haggard and others. How shrewd a businessman was Buck Owens? Well, he was a really hard worker, and uh, he just had uh, the the mental skill to come up with how to do this business the right way. Um, I, I think it was really kind of intuitive and instinctive on his part. It's not like Buck Owens was someone who sat 
around and watched a bunch of other musicians and songwriters get screwed. You know, he he, he wasn't uh, in a situation to even be able to see that happen. If he'd have been sitting in the middle of Nashville and watching what was happening to other artists signing these seven-year uh, recording contracts and uh, these indentured service publishing contracts, uh it, it would be one thing, but but he wasn't someone who had experienced those things. So just intuitively, he knew to protect himself, and he figured out where the money comes from. And the money comes from, if you're a songwriter, it comes from the publishing. If you're a recording artist, it comes from who controls the masters uh, that you've recorded. And so... He, he was just, yeah, he was shrewd, he was smart, uh, and when it came to business, for some reason, I mean, the man, you know, never got out of high school, but for some reason he had the the, uh, the, the mental and the mathematical capability to know how to put the business together, how to handle it, and he ended up having his own publishing company. Uh, he ended up signing other writers. If he was recording a song, he would do what he could to get the publishing from the the songwriter um, or his co-writers or whomever. And uh, in later years, he learned to get control of, of his masters. He also... Um, Instead of continuing to go down to Los Angeles to record at Capitol Studios, he said, why am I doing that when I can just have my own recording studio in Bakersfield? So he did that, too. I mean, it was it was just brilliant stuff business wise. And he had a, a business manager, Jack McFadden, that was with him from very early on in his career, started out as his booking agent and then became his manager. Those two stayed together the whole way. How important was Jack McFadden to the whole Buck Owens success machine? Yeah, I I think that Jack um he's he he deserves more credit than he's gotten. Um although he was he became pretty well known in Nashville and, and other people were using him but but Buck uh found Jack uh, or vice versa and and the two of them did work together for years. They created a company called Omac uh which was a booking agency and a management company. So in addition to uh having the publishing company uh and and that aspect, he also, he, uh, Buck and, and Jack uh, managed a number of artists, Susan Ray and Freddie Hart, and a bunch of others, and also uh, booked them and uh, would put them on tours, on package tours with Buck. And, and so they had, they had quite an industry going um, in Bakersfield because they were, about the only ones with the those those business skills in Bakersfield uh, when everybody else was doing the same kind of thing in Nashville. And in addition to the team on the business side, he had an incredible team of musicians that he worked with, pr- principally Don Rich. He was originally named All Rich. Buck actually named him Don Rich, renamed him. Tell us a little bit about that bond between Buck and his lead guitarist, Don Rich, who you know, had many offers to leave and go solo and, and never did, was was content to be Buck's number two. Yeah, well, Don was, you know, he was the secret weapon. Um, Buck met him when he when Don was a teenager up in Washington. Uh, Buck had um, moved away from Bakersfield. He was frustrated. This is very early on. This was before the the second fiddle that you played. Um, Very early on in his Capitol career, the the, the first couple of records that came out, which he didn't have creative control over, uh, flopped. And so he went up and became a disc jockey at a radio station up there and and had a band up there. And uh, Dusty Rhodes, who was one of the band members, came to, to Buck and said, I found this kid that plays the fiddle and uh, he's going to be in the band. And, and Buck said, well, I got to hear him first. And he was knocked out by him. And Don not only played the fiddle, he also played guitar Uh but the thing I think that was every bit as important as Don's uh, guitar playing was the harmony vocals that uh, he came up with when he and Buck were singing together. And that, to me, was the magic uh, of that sound. Was It was very much like 
the Leuven brothers or the Everly brothers or, or any other brothers act that could do those kind of harmonies. Uh, I'll tell you, if you go to YouTube and you watch some of the old Buck Owens uh uh, ranch hours shows that are on YouTube and see songs being sung by the two of them together. It is an amazing thing to just watch visually because they are identical. They're completely in lockstep with each other when it comes to the vocals. It, it's an amazing thing to watch as well as to hear. But Don was as important as they came. Don began to emulate Buck's uh, guitar playing style, and Buck, who had always been the lead guitarist in all of his bands, and in fact had been a uh, lead guitarist at, at Capitol as a studio musician, pretty much let Don take over the lead guitar duties because he became that good. And um, so Don was was the lead guitarist. Don sang the harmony vocals. Don was also the, the the pretty much the manager of the band. He was in charge of keeping keeping the act together. And um, and he was kind of you know honestly a buck soulmate. Uh, they they just worked together uh, so perfectly. Uh, that when there was no more Don, things were never, ever the same for Buck personally or musically. Yeah, there's a poignant bit towards the end where Buck's talking about Don, who died in a motorcycle accident in the early 70s. But he said, uh, I've started to wonder if there really is such a thing as reincarnation, because if there is, there's no doubt that me and Don were brothers in another lifetime. We weren't just brothers, we were twins. We had a sort of telep tele telepathy with each other. Well, that's what it was with me and Don, musical telepathy. And no matter how I searched for another person who could read my musical mind, the way he could read mine and I could read his, I couldn't find anybody else like him. And and he just went through, you know, Buck's not a very emotional person. He he talks about multiple divorces and, and difficulties with his you know losses of numerous family members in pretty restrained ways. But when he talks about losing Don Rich, he's pretty open that this just absolutely shattered him. Yeah, I mean, imagine listening to that cassette. I mean, it it, it was heavy. Uh, it, it's because I like I I'll tell you this. I met Buck Owens one time in my life. I was in Nashville at the Lowe's Vanderbilt Hotel, uh, and that uh, attorney I mentioned that I had called uh, to ask about a, a Buck book. Uh, that that attorney was standing with Buck Owens in the lobby there at the Lowe's Vanderbilt Hotel, and um, and so. I, this was 20 years ago, and of course I was dying to meet Buck, and so uh, I got the attorney to introduce me to him. Buck was a very tall guy, surprisingly tall, um, and uh, kind of aloof until I told him that uh, I had actually done a, a reissue of one of his albums, and suddenly we were best friends. Uh, <laughs> but, but that was my, my sole experience with Buck, was this guy that was, uh, yeah, you know, hey, nice to meet you, and then looking over my head to see who else was in the room, to suddenly being interested in me when I realized I had made him some money, right? <laughs> so, so so that was the Buck I knew in a microcosm in in two minutes of, of talking to the man. Uh, not a really emotional guy. Not a really warm guy. Uh, but to listen to those cassettes and hear him talk about Don, uh, he became the other side of Buck Owens. I, I learned there was a very warm side to the man uh, and a very emotional side to him and that I don't think he had ever been closer to anybody than he was to Don uh, and and so it, it was a, a very very special relationship and you know it, it, it's hard to fathom when someone uh, that close to you is just gone and so quickly uh, that um, I can see how the damage was permanent to him. And let's hear another tune. This is a, a fairly early Buck Owens song, one that kind of obscure, one I hadn't heard until recently. This is a cover of Doc Pomus's and Mort Schumann's Save the Last Dance for Me, which was immortalized by the Drifters. This is Buck Owens and the Buckaroos take on it. If I dance with the guy gives you the eye, let him hold you tight. You can smile, give a smile for the guy 
And that was Buck Owens' take on Save the Last Dance for Me. Now, Buck, for a guy who wrote a letter, uh, published a public letter saying, you know, I will play nothing that's not country music. And releasing singles like this, also covering Chuck Berry repeatedly, covering the coasters. How did Buck Owens define country music? Well, first of all, I'm not sure that Buck wasn't just yanking everybody's chain. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think Buck was always going to record whatever he wanted to record. Um, And he was always going to put a country twist on whatever it was. But, you know, the, the, the irony to this, that full page ad that he took out saying, you know, I'll play no song. That's not a country song, etc. cetera. Uh, this is a guy who already was playing something more akin to rock than to country. Uh, he was the one who had a drummer. You could actually hear, um, he was, he and, and Don were playing lead guitar lines that, you know, the Almond brothers were later emulate, uh, yeah, he was he was country, uh, he was honky tonk, but uh, he was going to play what he was going to play, and I think his concern there was he didn't want to lose country radio because things like Tiger by the Tail, which was a hit at the time that he right before he wrote that uh, letter, uh, was flying up the pop charts. He was becoming popular. Uh, on the, to to the young people uh, who didn't care about any other kind of country music coming out of Nashville, so he had reasons to be concerned that he didn't want to lose country radio, uh, and I think that's what that thing, that letter to 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 the country audience was was about, really. But as far as what he defined as country music, uh, he rightfully said, you know, you listen to a song like the lyrics of Johnny B. Good. If that's not a country song, you know, what is? Because it's about a country boy living in a cabin back in the woods, uh, you know, etc. And, and uh, yeah, that's 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 true. But uh uh, Charlie Brown, which he recorded, wasn't exactly a country song. <laughs> Written no. by my bosses, by the way, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who wrote all the Coasters hits. Yeah, some classic stuff. And I've sort of gotten a little bit away from the historical narrative. I want to pull back a little bit and talk about Buck's upbringing and where he came from. And Buck is very much a part of the Dust Bowl diaspora. That that he, you know, was a Texan. His family was, you know, his dad was a dairy worker's family were poor farmers in Texas, and they tried to get to California, didn't quite make it. Stopped over in Arizona for several years, and and then finally, eventually, migrates up to Bakersfield. And you know, there's another singer songwriter from his era that's probably more identified with that Dust Bowl diaspora, and that's Merle Haggard. Tell us a little bit about Buck and Merle's relationship and how Merle started out in Buck's band and published his songs with Buck, etc. Yeah, Merle um, was in living in the same area, very close by, and um, he, he became uh, Buck's bass player. The reason I'm laughing is because I remember Don Imus years ago interviewing Merle Haggard, and he said, is it true that you were Buck Owens, a bass player at one time? And Merle said, yeah, but only for a couple of weeks. And Don said, why would you quit? And Merle said, I couldn't afford it. (laughs) (laughs) I take it Buck didn't pay well uh, back (laughs) in those days. But but Merle... um, not only was his bass player in that short time he was with him, he also named the band uh, because it, there there are some pictures in the book of um, of uh, the guys wearing these kind of cowhide jackets and and Merle when he was told this is what he was going to have to wear, he said, "You know, we're going to look like a bunch of buckaroos." And hey, perfect word. Um, 
But but there was, you know, it was a love-hate relationship. Um, Buck, of course, was instrumental in helping Merle out with his career. Uh, Merle was the poet of the bunch that came from Bakersfield. He was such a great, great lyricist. My goodness, his stuff could bring you to tears if you just read it on paper. Um he was not a businessman. He was when it came to that aspect of his life and career. He was the polar opposite of Buck, um, and he would be the first to tell you that. Um, I mean, the guy went bankrupt multiple times, um, but he didn't know about publishing. He didn't care about publishing. Uh, he just wrote songs and recorded them and went out on the road and played them and 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 that was his life and buck being more astute when it came to business uh said i'll publish your works for you and merle said sure why not um and so so that ended up having the kind of issues and problems that one might expect is Merle realizes one day that I, I, I signed certain rights away that I, you know, didn't have to sign away or that I could have signed to somebody else for more money or whatever. And, and so there were, there were, uh, some, some scuffles. I'll tell you in, in Buck's defense, really, uh, I was fascinated when I was writing the book, in addition to the tapes, um, the the folks, the, the Buck's uh, son and uh, sons and nephew, uh, gave me complete access to absolutely everything. There there were no secrets. There there were no stones unturned. They said, "Here are the files. Feel free to use whatever you want." I mean, they 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 just wanted the truth. Um, and what I found in those files, among other things, were all the condolence letters that Buck got after Don passed away, which was just heart-wrenching and, and, and so meaningful and, and put it in real time. Uh, but also the letters between Merle and Buck and, and Merle complaining about some publishing issues and Buck trying to explain to him <laughs> probably knowing futilely that Merle's never going to understand that Merle, you have a better deal. I've given you a better deal than all the other writers have. The percentage I'm taking on the publishing is only half of what I'm taking from everybody else. I, you know, I, I can't do a better deal th than the deal I've given you and, and Merle j just not getting it. And, and having, Myself been in the music publishing business for forty years. I understood what Buck was trying to tell him, and Merle couldn't grasp it. And it's always, it was kind of sad. But but Merle, you know, he was like I said, he was a poet. Merle was just pure talent, uh, and the greatest to ever come out of Bakersfield. I think everyone would say that, including Buck. Um, but Buck was the more astute. Buck was the more business-minded. And, and so the, that's where the two uh, uh, butted heads. And to me, you know, looking back on Buck and Merle and, and contemporaries like Johnny Cash, it's always seemed like for all Buck's accomplishments in the 60s and not just pop, popular success, but – running an incredible band and, and just flying the fat flag for hardcore rebellious country at a time when Nashville had things kind of on lockdown. And yet Merle's the one with the myth and the legend. And, and I think it's, you know, because Merle mythologized himself in his, in his poetry and he's the wanted man and the fugitive and doing life and turned 21 doing life in prison without parole and all that stuff. Whereas Buck never really, created that myth of buck owens he's just cutting great songs and 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 moving on down the road and also as a gen xer when i first my first exposure like everybody in my generation was was the clown on tv on hee-haw and you know when i was 15 or 16 and an older brother-in-law was 
digging through the records in Amarillo and coming back with Buck Owens records, I was like, why are you buying Buck Owens records? He's just a clown. And, and he quickly schooled me. No, he was a badass. And this is hardcore country. And this is an incredible band. And, you know, my love for Buck Owens was on there. But how much did he haw damage the Buck Owens legacy? Oh, uh, it was harsh and it was permanent. Um, and, and I mean, part of the reason uh, I wanted to do the book was to try to turn Buck back into Buck Owens and uh, and get him away from from the clown that he became known as. See, because when I was a kid, I'm clearly older than you. Uh, when I was a kid um, in the 60s, I was hearing the real thing. Um, I was living in, in Missouri, which had a lot of Southwest Missouri, had a lot of country radio stations and and Buck was everywhere. And uh, I just thought his stuff was so incredible, especially, you know, compared to everything else we were hearing on country radio. Um, it, Buck was just, you know, so superior musically uh, and, and and orally. And so. Uh, when Hee Haw happened, uh, it was such corn, and 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 I mean, I, 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 let me just see if if I can find some some way to compare it. I mean, pick your favorite act uh, of all time, and imagine whoever that is putting on a pair of overalls backwards and going on TV and acting like an idiot. I mean, you know, it's just it's yeah. just hard to grasp. Uh, but that's exactly what he did. You know, uh, it, he just went from being this badass country superstar uh, to this this hillbilly, uh, and, and and it it made no sense. It, it it was hard to grasp why he would do that to himself, and that was the one time. Uh, that the money won out over the music in a major way. Now, it, it, on the tapes, uh, he he justified the early years because he was also the basically the music supervisor at the very beginning, and so he was the one that first year of Hee Haw that got Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and Loretta Lynn and and all these big names as the the musicians the guest musicians who appeared on the show but very early on it went from being uh, mostly music and some comedy to about half and half music and comedy to then mostly comedy and bad cornball comedy at that and so we, you know we just watched this man go 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 from being this this amazing uh, country act, uh, the biggest act of the entire decade of the '60s, to this, you know, parody, and um, it was a shame. But yeah, that's exactly what happened. And and it, it's clear in autobiography that he was aware of the risk he was taking. That he knew that kind of overexposure and that kind of branding, um, you know, was going to damage damage him. But the the money was just too good to walk away from. I think it was like four hundred thousand dollars a year to start with, which in sixty eight dollars is several million now. So, and and also to me, looking back at his career in retrospect, especially you know he didn't know Don Rich was going to pass away, but but once Don Rich passed away, his creative fire was really kind of out. So he Hall was a good way in a way for Buck to stay in the public eye and keep busy and keep making money while his music career was kind of on hold in a way. So I've sort of reconciled myself to hee-haw and i've come to love the show in retrospect but it sure put a ding on buck so let's let's hear some peak era buck and and get that hee-haw taste out of our mouths this is buck owens and the buckaroos doing tiger by the tail i won't be much when you get through with me well i'm a losing weight and i'm turning mighty pale Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail Well, I thought the day I met you You were meek as a lamb Just the kind to fit my dreams and plans Now the pace we're living takes the way 
And that was Tiger by the Tail, possibly the peak of the Buck Owens uh, Bakersfield sound from 1965. Number one country hit, number 25 on the pop charts. And this is also coming on the heels of the biggest band in the world, uh, biggest celebrities in the world, covering Act Naturally, which Buck didn't write, but was his hit. Tell us a little bit about the Beatles and Buck Owens and how that impacted his career and people's perception of him. Well, you know, the Beatles, um, they were always fans of... uh, Rockabilly and country uh, on those early albums of theirs, uh, they were recording uh, a lot of Carl Perkins and um, that kind of thing. When it when they weren't doing their own material, they were doing Carl Perkins. They were doing Chuck Berry, um, and they were also on Capitol. And uh, their deal with Capitol Records was. Anytime there's a new Buck Owens album, four copies have to be sent to us. And uh, when Buck found that out, he said, okay, then I want to have copies of their albums too when their new ones come out. And so they were basically, you know, trading records. Um, and the, the, um, the, the, uh, the song that really jumped out at them from, from, one of those albums was Act Naturally, and so, uh, and it was a perfect song for Ringo to sing, and um, so, so that's how they end, why they ended up recording that particular song. I think it was on the flip side of Yesterday. It was, it, it yeah. was, it was, um, it, it was certainly um, a, a, a boon to uh, Johnny Russell, <laughs> who, who wrote the song, um, and Vonnie Morris. Um, but but yeah, there was there was a certainly uh, mutual respect there. There's a um, probably the, the most famous live country album of all time was Buck Owens and the Buckaroos live at Carnegie Hall, and um, on the uh, extended uh, CD version of that live album, the the Buckaroos do a whole Beatles routine and actually sing some Beatles songs uh, as part of, as part of the the uh, the act. Yeah, it's pretty classic with them wearing beetle wigs and, uh, you know, carrying on. It talks in the book about they'd sometimes Don Rich would shoot the beetle wigs uh, with an air rifle on stage. And so it's it's pretty classic, you know, mid-60s conservative response to the Beatles. But it's done with some affection. And I'm sure it was much more affectionate after Act Natural after they covered Act Naturally and, and you know raised his profile to a whole new audience. And there's there's a great story in the book of Buck meeting a woman on a plane who's very contemptuous of country music and uh, loves the Beatles and refuses to accept that Act Naturally is a country song. Right. Well, yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that, that's kind <laughs> of the. the uh, the flip side of of uh, Buck recording Chuck Berry songs, it, it, it's uh, <laughs> and trying to say it's this is a country song. Um, <laughs> the the the, the uh, you know people uh, put things in in buckets like that, and it's and it's funny. I mean, it's it's been I've, I've been in the music business all my entire adult life and and that's one of the things that that drives us in the music business crazy is that well we have to say what the genre is so we'll know the proper place for the record to go in the store of course luckily the world has changed or better or worse the world has changed to a point that 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 there you don't have to worry about that as much anymore because there aren't record stores to go to there aren't bins to look in like there used to be but yeah it's it's when it came to buck um he was one of those people who uh was doing country music but because of the the power and the and the the um, sometimes just the plain speed uh the tempo of what he was doing uh caused uh, him to have popularity in in the pop market as well and like we said to the extent that people like the beatles were covering the songs that buck was recording and Ray Charles did a couple of Buck hits and got some Grammy Awards and won Buck's Undying Love because these were songs Buck wrote and had the publishing on. So it was it was a financial windfall as well as an artistic compliment that he he knew what it meant to be covered by Ray Charles and, and you know, the magnificence of Ray Charles' talent. But 
at the same time as he's doing this, his business success is just building. He's he's acquiring, in addition to the booking company he and his manager co-founded and his publishing company, he's acquiring radio stations, both in Bakersfield and in Arizona, and a TV station. And his accountant for years and years uh, chided him about this and said that, you know, this is pure folly. The profit margins don't justify the investment, et cetera, et cetera. How much did Buck Owens end up selling his radio empire for when it was all said and done? Well, it was uh, my recollection. It was like it was over 100 million. Um, uh, yeah, 140 is the figure you cite. In the right, book. And right, did you right. confirm that? I mean, that is crazy money. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's absolutely true. Wow. It, it was clear channel to bought it. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the thing was, remember now, Buck was not the most complex man. Uh, that ever lived. But when I mentioned earlier about him being up in Washington where he met Don, he, was, he wasn't he was just a disc jockey there. The way he was really making money at the radio station, in fact, was buying into that radio station was he was selling ads. At the end of the day, what Buck Owens was, was just one of the greatest salesmen who ever lived. He was going out selling ad time on the radio and he realized this is how a radio station makes money the more ad revenue you bring in the more money you have and instead of in the case of that station instead of just keeping a piece uh, he was letting the owner have that piece so that he could end up being one third owner of that radio station. Uh, and, and so he sold that radio station, his piece of that radio station when he left Washington and went back to Bakersfield after, um, he finally had his first real hit, um, under your spell again. And so, so, he learned very early on, this is how radio works. So knowing the simple process of the more ads you sell, the more revenue that comes in, uh, it was just a question of, can I buy some of these myself? And um, he did so in Arizona, and he did so in Bakersfield. And he hung on to them, and he let them grow. He let the revenue increase. And... Um, you know, they, they, he didn't have any way of knowing that the day was going to come when companies like Clear Channel were going to be acquiring just huge swaths of radio stations across America. But he also didn't have any way of knowing that CDs were going to exist someday and that getting all his masters back, which I'm sure we'll talk about, actually was going to be so meaningful financially. So sometimes he was just lucky, but the intuition was always correct. Yeah, and let's talk about that deal. He renegotiated his capital deal at the peak of his success in the late 60s or towards the end of the peak of his success in the late 60s. And and that was one of his things that he most wanted to do was get the masters. And so even though the contract ended in 1976, because he basically couldn't buy a hit once he was on Hee Haw, in 1980, as per the contract, the, the masters reverted to him. I, I think, you know, one thing about business that people like me and Merle Haggard have a hard time understanding mm-hmm. is that, you know, people like Buck Owens or Colonel Tom Parker, uh, you know, these or Alan Klein, you know, these legendary music business negotiators is is it's all about that contract. And, and there's this perception that you can be as hard ass as you want in the negotiations as long as you honor that contract at the end of the day, you're an honorable businessman. And if you get somebody to take a terrible deal, if you both sign it and agree to it, that's business. And do you think that that, I mean, does that sort of epitomize Buck's attitude and he just grasped that fundamental rule of American and Western business? Um, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. See, I, I never think of him, you know, you mentioned some people there that, that were kind of uh, – there were thieves, and I didn't mean to, to be casting aspersions on him, but they were also incredible businessmen. I mean, you read about Colonel Tom Parker negotiating and renegotiating and re-renegotiating with RCA or or um, the Hollywood studios, and you have to admire the man's skills. And the same thing with Alan Klein, you know, would go in to Decca Records in London 
with the Rolling Stones and, and literally hold them hostage by threatening to audit their books, you know, which no record company <laughs> wants any part of. And so, you know, I mean, to me, reading about Buck Owens, it's just the only contemporary of his that's a musician that's comparable is somebody like Dave Clark, who ended up, who owned his masters from the beginning, you know, and ends up buying uh, TV shows, archives as well. And so I just, I'm trying to find a way to express the audience just how incredible Buck's business acumen was. Yeah, well, um, I, I think someone who's comparable is Garth Brooks. Mm. Uh, yeah, in today's world for sure. Okay, so, so so you know who 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 thinks of Garth Brooks as being a hard-headed businessman? But Garth Brooks got all his masters back, um, and he did it because Buck said, "Do it." Uh, they'll give them to you because record labels are stupid. Uh, and they did. Um, so, but, but what Buck was going for was, um, he, he just, like I say, he just seemed to intuitively know that, that, that these things had a value, um, which Capitol records didn't think they did. Capital was, was a label that was looking at the immediate future not way down the road. And in fact, when he said, I want to buy my master's essentially five years after my last deal has expired, they were thinking all that stuff will be so old by then, it'll all be out of print. So what do we care? And, 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 and they couldn't have been more wrong because they didn't take into account that right around the corner is going to be a whole new format of music. Uh, and they didn't take into account the day would come when uh, music supervisors would want to include Buck's recordings in TV shows and in movies and in commercials. And so all these avenues of income existed, and Buck knew they, 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 about film and TV and commercials, so I, I think he knew that there was going to be something here uh, that would be of value down the line. Uh, I don't think that uh, he had any conception that something like a Rhino Records would come along and suddenly uh, the reissues would become such an important part of the industry and that he'd be in the dead center of it uh, with with Rhino doing box sets of his works and, and Sundays reissuing every single album individually. And so so, so it, it all just worked out because it worked out. But but I, I you know it's funny I, I think that Buck, um, I think the thing that, that this, the conundrum about Buck Owens and what makes him a fascinating character is that Buck had skills he wasn't supposed to have. You know, when we think about great musicians, great songwriters, great artists, we also think, in every case, but Buck really lousy business person i mean look at the beatles look at lennon and mccartney he just did the, the shittiest publishing deal of all time uh the horrendous record contracts uh and and, and you know it, it's just the way it was i mean the stones mick and keith would have gone down the same road were it not for alan klein there to 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 pull them from that abyss but the thing about buck was buck just he, he had he was left-brained right-brained and 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 very good at both things somehow. And speaking of being good at, at two things, let's hear Buck and the Buckaroos live at the London Palladium in 1968 doing Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good. That was Buck Owens and the Buckaroos version of Johnny B. Good, which, my God, it's that to me is is that cuts all other versions of Johnny B. Good, and Don Rich's solo on that is so incredible. Um, 
I just have visions of of English guitar heroes sitting in the audience and crying when they hear that, and and the authority that Buck counts it in. It's it's very much like an American band, even though they're seen as a country band, claiming this is our music, you know, and and showing the Brits how it's done. It's just an incredible performance. Yeah, Buck said. Um... That's the guitar. He said, "That's the greatest uh, lead guitar solo Don ever played." He said, "Hell, this is the greatest lead guitar solo." Period. He said, "When I have gone back and listened uh, to to anything, it was that one record and how incredible Don was on that one recording." Yeah, and it's just a very unique style and nothing like Chuck Berry whatsoever. Don Rich's own invention, so it's just just a beautiful thing. But before we roll out, let's talk a little bit about his '80s comeback and how did he hook up with Dwight Yoakam and 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 do the whole Streets of Bakersfield? Well, Dwight had come to uh, play at the Kern County Fair, and so he stopped in at Buck's offices uh, and asked him to come be on stage with him that night, and. Buck said, you know, at first it wasn't something that he was wanted to do. Other people had asked him to do that, and he had said no. And he felt like he had really, you know, people in Bakersfield had seen him enough uh, and didn't really have a desire to, to go through that. Uh, but um, he really liked Dwight, and he also knew that, that Dwight's style was strikingly similar uh, to Bucks, and so when he went to see him that night, he's like, "Okay, I'll do this." And they went out on stage, and they played, and and um, like Buck said, you know, the audience it was just electric. It was just one of those things where he and Dwight connected uh, musically and with the audience, and it was uh, just going to be a one-off, and that was that. Um, and then uh, I believe it was Buck and Merle were supposed to perform together on a on a uh, country uh, TV show, and uh, Merle had to back out, and so uh, Buck suggested Dwight, and um, and then they had to come up with the song, and Buck went back through his old albums and found the Streets of Bakersfield, and said told Dwight I think this will work, and um, so they performed the song on TV. And got so many requests for it uh, that they um, Buck was able to talk Dwight into going to the studio and uh, recording it. And, of course, that became uh, Streets of Bakersfield with Flaco Jimenez on the, on the accordion. That became Buck's 21st number one record. And I, I found it – I mean, I was 18 or 19 working in an auto parts garage – when that record came out and it was just such a highlight that was a good time for country radio in general following a very bad time in the early 80s and hearing buck and dwight and that just the defiance and the working class pride in that song and then adding you know the latino aspect with flaco uh was just perfect and and you know as i learned more about buck later on and realized the role of his drummer willie Cantu in in his peak era you know the classic uh, Buckaroo's lineup featured a Latino drummer, and I, I just thought it was a, a fitting that because you know Willie had contributed some subtle Latin rhythms to Buck's music, and and Buck and Dwight, Dwight very much the you know the coming out of the L.A. Paisley underground with with rock and punk groups like X and the Blasters, but doing basically a straight up tribute to the buckaroos i mean the the bakersfield sound was what dwight yoakam was after and it was just such a perfect thing and and a, a great way for buck to get his 21st number one i will always love that song and and randy i've really enjoyed talking to you about buckham the autobiography of buck owens and maybe love to have you back on sometime to talk dwayne allman or lieber and stoller oh happy to do it awesome thanks randy thank you Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Jeff Yerzik, the director of The Devil and Daniel Johnston, to discuss the late singer-songwriter and Austin, Texas legend, the line between genius and madness, the lo-fi movement, and the making of one of the all-time great rock documentaries. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Buckham, the autobiography of Buck Owens, is published by Roman and Littlefield. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.